0: All right, Nick. So, um, you know, I feel like as I'm getting to the end of my fellowship, I still feel like I need to go back and remind myself about all of the general OBGYN topics as well as some primary care stuff. So how do I do that?
1: Yeah. You know, our friends at the OBG Project actually have a new sister website that's come out called the PC Med Project or the Primary Care Med Project um, that focuses in on a lot of things from medicine that we may have forgotten. And probably that our family medicine and internal medicine listeners completely remember, but they just need a better resource to be able to get those bullet-pointed summaries.
0: Yeah. As I'm looking through this website, I see a ton of great information. It looks like they've also broken this down into specialty areas. So not just your normal alerts and things like that, but also looking at review of cancer screening. If you need to like look at some endocrine topics, even some dermatology topics, this is really great for anyone who wants to review some of your basic primary care
1: subjects. So definitely check out the PC Med project at pcmedproject.com. But if you're an OBGYN resident, remember too that you can get the OBG project and OBG first as well as that resident core curriculum absolutely free heading to our website at www.cregservercoffee.com, checking out our sidebar and getting signed up. All right, guys. Welcome back. This is Nick.
0: And this is Faye. And this is Criags, Criags Over, over coffee. coffee. So, guys, today we have with us two very exciting guests to talk to us about inflammatory bowel disease and pregnancy. So, first with us is Dr. Rachel Matting. Dr. Matting, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So Dr. Matting is a second-year resident at Oregon Health Science University, and uh, we also have with us Dr. David Abel back again. Welcome, Dr. Abel.
2: Thanks so much. Thanks for having us.
0: And Dr. Abel is is an assistant professor of OBGYN at the same institution.
2: Yeah, we're super
1: excited to have you guys today um, to talk to us about inflammatory bowel disease and particularly inflammatory bowel disease in pregnancy. Rachel, we understand that you are a budding expert here. And so we want to ask you first, what are you going to take us through today?
3: I don't know if I would call myself a budding expert, but I certainly have learned quite a bit. So first, we're going to start with the definition of inflammatory bowel disease, bring you back to those medical school days a bit. As is typical, we counsel patients about a medical condition. So we're going to discuss the effects of the condition on pregnancy and vice versa. Then we can delve a little bit into the medications that can be used during pregnancy to treat IBD with a focus on the biologics, which are being increasingly used over the past few years. We will touch on mode of delivery in this patient population. And finally, we will mention the importance of preconception counseling.
0: So let's get right into IBD. So before we delve into that relationship between IBD and pregnancy, Rachel, um, can you first tell us what is inflammatory
3: bowel disease? Inflammatory bowel disease, or IBD, is comprised of two major disorders, ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. Ulcerative colitis, or UC, affects the colon and is characterized by inflammation of the mucosal layer. It is notable for rectal involvement with a continuous pattern of inflammation. A key defining symptom is bloody diarrhea. UC can also be associated with systemic findings, including uveitis, scleritis, erythema nodosum, pyoderma gangrenosum, arthritis, lung disease, and venous thromboembolic disease. In comparison, Crohn's disease can involve any component of the gastrointestinal tract from the oral cavity to the anus and is characterized by transmural inflammation, often with skip lesions. It may also include perianal rectal involvement about 50% of the time. Symptoms of Crohn's are highly variable and include fatigue, diarrhea, abdominal pain, weight loss, rectal bleeding, fistulas, perianal abscess formation, and abscess ulcers.
1: Thanks for taking us through that medical school refresher. And definitely, um, we will have a table probably that looks very familiar to our listeners from the days of first aid for Step 1 on the website, kind of going through many of those differences again. Um, But Rachel, you know, kind of to get to the crux of this too, I think it's surprising, you know, how common these disorders are. Can you share with us how common they are and why we as OBGYN should know about them?
3: Absolutely. So approximately 1.6 million Americans have IBD, with about 70,000 new cases diagnosed in the United States each year. More than 50% of those with IBD are women and will carry the diagnosis during their reproductive years. For every 100,000 deliveries, approximately 130 will be complicated by IBD. Crohn's disease is particularly noted to be more common in female. Therefore, it is important for women women's healthcare providers to be knowledgeable about the diagnosis, prenatal counseling, and obstetrical management.
0: Thanks so much Rachel. That is definitely more common than I guess I would have expected IBD to be. So, tell us a little bit more then since we are OBGYNs what the
3: effects of IBD can be on pregnancy. Patients with IBD appear to be at increased risk of preterm delivery, low birth weight, and cesarean delivery. Active disease, particularly at the time of conception, seems to increase the risk of adverse outcomes. Preterm delivery is the most consistent adverse outcome associated with IBD disease activity in pregnancy, and a meta-analysis of over 3,900 pregnant women with IBD showed an increased rate of preterm delivery and low birth weight by approximately twofold, regardless of disease activity, as compared with non-IBD women. Large population-based studies have also shown that patients with IBD have a 1.5 to two-fold increase in the rate of cesarean delivery. The etiology of the association of IBD with adverse pregnancy outcomes remains unclear. One theory is that IBD represents a generalized inflammatory state. With regards to other adverse uh, perinatal outcomes, the data is conflicting. A large California study that included mostly women with mild or quiescent disease demonstrated increased rates of antepartum complications including spontaneous abortion, preeclampsia, eclampsia, placental abruption, fetal distress, placenta previa and premature rupture of membranes compared with healthy aged match controls in contrast a similar design european study with over 85% participants in disease remission did not reveal an association with the aforementioned outcomes Finally, due to the increased risk of uh, venous thromboembolism in patients with IBD, the Toronto Consensus Statements for the Management of Inflammatory Bowel Disease in Pregnancy recommends consideration of prophylactic anticoagulation when a pregnant patient with IBD is hospitalized for a flare or after undergoing C section. The American College of Chest Physicians does not consider IBD specifically as a venous thromboembolism risk factor. However, it does recommend post cesarean prophylactic anticoagulation coagulation for those with one uh, major or two minor risk factors. So we can see there is no consensus on this topic.
1: Well, that's unfortunate. Um, We always love consensus, but we never seem to arrive at it in high-risk pregnancy conditions, you know. But um, why don't we shift, though? Maybe there's something that's a little bit clearer. Um, What about the effects of pregnancy itself on inflammatory bowel disease?
3: Yeah, that's a really great question. So the risks of having a flare during pregnancy in patients with quiescent disease is similar to the non-pregnant patient. For those who conceive when their disease is quiescent, which accounts for almost 80% of patients, their disease tends to remain in remission throughout pregnancy and postpartum. Among patients with Crohn's disease who conceive while their disease is active, the disease goes into remission in one-third, remains stably active in one-third, and worsens in one-third. It has been noted that patients with UC in pregnancy often have more active disease compared with Crohn's disease. There are two hypotheses for um, why this phenomenon may be. First, the placenta secretes pro-inflammatory cytokines that seem to have more of an influence on UC. And secondly, UC tends to be under-treated during pregnancy to a greater extent than Crohn's. Thanks
0: so much. So. Often, one of the most important issues when caring for our patients with inflammatory bowel disease, um and often the issue that patients are most concern are most concerned about is the medications that they're using and the effects of the medications that they're using and how that can affect the pregnancy or their fetus. So can you talk to us a little bit more
3: about that? Definitely. It is not uncommon to see a patient for a preconception visit or new OB visit who's been told that IBD makes their pregnancy extremely high risk, which can lead to unnecessary anxiety. As we discussed, patients need to be aware that the greatest risk to their pregnancy is active disease at the time of conception. So discontinuing their medication during this time can have adverse effects. The patient may self-discontinue, con- self but in some cases, we see other providers discontinue certain medications. This is where a provider-to-provider discussion can be helpful and educational reg- regarding the importance of continuing these medications. When counseling patients, providers should be aware of the Pregnancy and Lactation Labeling Rule, uh, PLLR, which took effect in June 2015 and replaced the highly ineffective letter category system. Still, the letter categories are often discussed among provider and patients and noted in the literature. Perhaps the most important concept regarding the use of medications during pregnancy to treat IBD is that most of these medications are not associated with congenital anomalies and adverse perinatal outcomes. There are several classes of medications, including corticosteroids, which are used to treat flares mostly, aminosalicylates antibiotics, immunomodulators, and biologics. First, we'll talk about immunosalicylates, which include sulfasalazine and mesalamine, which are commonly used to treat UC to reduce intestinal inflammation. Although not associated with fetal risks, they may increase nausea and GI um, upset or cause reflux in pregnancy. They should be given with at least 2 milligrams folic acid during pregnancy because of the antifolate effects. Antibiotics, including ciprofloxacin, which recalls the fluoroquinolone, and metronidazole are primarily used for flares and complications such as pouchitis and perianal disease. In a prospective study of patients exposed to fluoroquinolones during pregnancy, the rates of major congenital malformations did not differ between the group exposed to quinolones in the first trimester and the control group. However, it has a high affinity for cartilage and has been associated with arthropo- arthropathy in animals and human case reports. Immunomodulators, um, which is another category, are primarily used to maintain remission and comprise of medications including thiopurines, azathioprine, um, and 6-mercaptopurine, all, um, which is often referred to as 6-MP, uh, as well as cyclosporin, methotrexate, and thalidomide. Of course, the latter two are contraindicated, and for those who are taking methotrexate, the recommendation is to wait three to six months after discontinuation before trying to conceive. Recall that azathioprine is a prodrug that is converted to 6-MP, and the recommendations are to continue these medications. Data suggests a high rate of relapse when these drugs are discontinued. Cyclosporine, which is a calcineurin inhibitor, is often used for flares and steroid-refractory UC. Experience with cyclosporin in pregnancy is mostly from transplant recipients, and does not appear to be associated with congenital anomalies. The anti-tumor necrosis factor alpha agents, which are also referred to as biologics, have been increasingly used in the treatment of both IBD and autoimmune conditions, and are typically used during induction and for maintenance of remission. Firmic necrosis factor is a cell signaling protein that is a neutrophil chemoattractant and thus involved in systemic inflammation, and it's produced by many different cells. Some of the flavors of anti-TNF-alpha agents that you may commonly encounter include infliximab, also known as Remicade, adalumumab, also known as Humira, and certolizumab, also known as Simsia. These agents are IgG antibodies and cross the placenta, with the exception of sirtalizumab, which does not cross the placenta because it lacks the FC receptor to facilitate placental transfer. In general, with regards to the use of biologics during pregnancy, safety data from prospective trials and large nationwide cohorts of women who continue taking biologics, biologics in pregnancy have not shown an increase in adverse fetal outcomes. The greatest amount of safety data is for infliximab and adalimumab, which have shown no increased rates of congenital anomalies or infections among infants up to one year of age who are exposed to these agents in utero. The PIANO study, which stands for Pregnancy in Inflammatory Bowel Disease and Neonatal Outcomes, is a prospective Observational study that enrolled pregnant women with IBD at 30 U.S. centers between January 2007 and March 2019. It is the largest prospective study looking at the safety of both biologics and thiopurine use during pregnancy, with 1,490 pregnant women, including 869, that were exposed to biologics. There was no increase in adverse events based on drug exposure during pregnancy or placental transfer of biologics. In the piano study, thiopurine exposed was also included, and the authors concluded that the use of thiopurines, whether used alone or in combination with biologics, did not increase the risk of adverse perinatal outcomes. And just lastly, biologics may result in B cell suppression in the infant; however, this appears to subside after four to six months. Most of the biologics are discontinued in the early third trimester due to placental transfer. Although there is no definitive consensus, these medications should be discontinued. Although the data regarding the use of these medications during lactation is limited, we typically continue these during breastfeeding, especially as there is a risk of an IBD flare in the postpartum period. It is typically recommended the infant not receive live vaccines for six months after birth. However, in most cases, this is not clinically relevant as the infant doesn't usually receive live vaccines in the first six months anyways.
1: Thank you for going through those medications. I'm really encouraged too by, um, as you mentioned, a lot of the encouraging data coming out about the biologics um, because I think that's been a a question point for a while for a lot of our patients. Another big question point for many patients who have IBD is about mode of delivery specifically. Um, And probably the most common question that I hear in my practice is, am I going to need a C-section for this? What, What do you say to that question specifically?
3: This is always a really important discussion to have with your patients, and shared decision making is key. All patients have the option of having an elective primary cesarean section. For most patients, a vaginal delivery is encouraged as the risks of a cesarean section are greater. For those with Crohn's disease and a history of perianal disease, but no current active disease, a vaginal delivery is reasonable, although some may still elect to undergo a cesarean section. For those with active perianal disease, a cesarean section is often performed due to concerns for complicated perianal andor sphincter injury and healing. For those with ulcerative colitis who have undergone an ileal pouch anal anastomosis, also referred to as an IPAA or J pouch, a cesarean delivery is often performed due to concerns for anal sphincter injury and pouch dysfunction. However, A history of an IPAA is not an absolute contraindication to a vaginal delivery. In summary, the decision regarding mode of delivery should be based on obstetric indications, not solely on the presence of inflammatory bowel disease, and made on an individual basis with discussions of the risks and benefits.
0: Awesome. So, you know, a lot of times um, what will happen is that people will come to us for preconception consultation because they know that they may be at high risk with their inflammatory bowel disease. So the last question that I think I would have is how should we approach the patient with IBD who is planning a pregnancy?
2: Thanks, Faye. Uh, Yeah, I would first emphasize that the importance of primary care providers and gastroenterologists who are caring for these patients to strongly consider a preconception consultation with a maternal fetal medicine specialist. Now, granted in some areas, this may not be readily available. However, I do feel that preconception counseling with a maternal fetal medicine specialist is often very underutilized. In terms of a discussion with the patient, I would stress the importance of remaining on their medications, unless they happen to be taking methotrexate, which as we know is something that should be stopped, Prior, so for several months prior to getting pregnant. Patients need to know that if their disease is quiescent prior to pregnancy, this portends a more favorable course during pregnancy, which again is a reason to continue most medications prior to pregnancy. Most patients with inactive disease do well during pregnancy, which also may allay anxiety. It is important to watch for a flare, as we discussed in the postpartum period. For patients who have active disease, ideally contraception is important to reduce the risk of adverse perinatal outcomes. Finally, most patients should be under the care of a gastroenterologist, and if not, it is important to reestablish care, as a multidisciplinary approach serves to optimize outcomes.
1: Well, perfect. I think that also just really rounds out a lot of the discussion that we've had today, Um, and then... Dr. Matting and Dr. Abel, you've also given us a really phenomenal list of references as well as that table that I mentioned earlier that are going to go on our website. Um, thank you both for joining us today and sharing your
2: expertise.
3: Thanks for having us.
2: Yeah, thank you. And thanks, Dr. Matting.
0: Yes, absolutely. Thank you both so much again for coming on to this podcast and for sharing your expertise. Uh, but I think this brings us to the end of this topic episode. So once again, this is Faye. This is Nick. And this has been Creogs Over
1: Coffee. So, guys, if you enjoyed the podcast today, head over to iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, whatever your podcatcher is, and give us a five-star rating and review.
0: You can find us on social media, on Twitter at CreogsOverCoff1, at Facebook, and Instagram at over Coffee. And if you want to support the show, you can go ahead and go onto our Patreon and make a donation to us. That's at www.patreon.com slash Coffee.
1: We have show notes for this episode as well as all of our previous episodes and that Ross Review Question of the Week on our website, creeogservercoffee.com.
0: And if you have suggestions for this show, a correction, or just want to say hi to us, go ahead and email us at CreeObserverCoffee at
2: gmail.com.